The first time that I saw Dick Price. Well, the first time I met him, my leader, Jeff Kent, he was coming along the other side of the road as I was walking back to Southcote. And I see him with this older man, I was kind of running along, and I see Jeff go to Dick and go, it's the guy the nine cent. So Dick, as we get closer, calls out across the road, oh, you're the guy the nine cent. So I I realise it's Dick. So I I call back going, "Uh, maybe I sent the nine. Welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. Today, we check in with a longtime Esalen and Big Sur community member, Neil Baldwin. Neil first came to Esalen in the early 1980s at the behest of a psychic named Jenny O'Connor. Neil would end up living at Esalen for more than two decades, working in a great many capacities at Esalen over the years, before he eventually settled into his own zone of genius at the Gazebo Preschool, where he held sway as a trusted and beloved park keeper and teacher for many, many years. In this chat, Neil and I discuss the Esalen of the 1980s with its profound emphasis on and many flavors of Gestalt psychology, as well as the influence of Dick Price before his untimely passing in 1985. Neil was an absolute pleasure to talk to, and after having known him for many years, it was such fun to let him write his own chapter of Esalen history. My name is Neil Baldwin. I have lived in the Big Sur area uh, for over 40 years and uh, have worked at Esalen on and off for all that time. And this is going to be a little story of how I came here all those years ago. I come from Essex in England, a wee town called Leon Sea, and is famous for its Delta Blues music. High school was very, very liberal. I was turned on to LSD by my headmaster. I mean, it really was a late 60s high school. You may have heard of the band Procol Harum. Well, they came from my high school. And 30 miles from London, so we'd go up to London to do the gigs and hang out and get back on the last train pretty much and get off the train and go straight to school. Um, didn't know what I was going to do. So uh, I got a kind of office job for the winter, earned a bit of money, went to Scotland. Then I managed to get a job driving tractors. I was cutting all the grass. I was delivering flowers and plants. I was picking magic mushrooms. So all summer, fantastic weather, lots of great music. You know, Bob Marley playing in London. And then the winter, I would uh, get the money I'd saved. I'd go to India or Afghanistan or Israel or Greece or... Nepal, yeah. going overland. The first time I caught the hippie bus, 50 bucks, a whole of us squashing this old bus with Brighton on the front, and off we go. Second or third time is public transport. Whatever came, boats and uh, trains and also whatever, mm. <laughs> camels, whatever we could find. So that was very exciting. Wow. And then I'd come back to England for the, for the, for the, wind, for the summer, mm-hmm. get my job back, carry on with the grass. I was known as the wild man of Borneo because I had three foot long hair and I was so tanned and I wore these little shorts and zipping around so I didn't know it but I had this whole reputation for really, really being a weirdo. Were you? Uh, Not really. No, no, not (laughs) So, I got back from India in 1978. Suddenly, oh God, I'm back. Mm-hmm. At the time they were having all the strikes, Thatcher was about to come in, mm-hmm. and you could just, the monetarism, you know, the thing where money is more important than people, because that's how we've been running the planet for the last 50 years, and it shows. So this was all just really beginning to come up, and I'm going, oh God, I can't handle this. Couldn't get a job back on the old park straight away. I ended up doing other jobs. I did the S training, 
uh, I went to see a psychic in my hometown. And she said, I see lots of people clapping. You're a musician? I go, no. She goes, well, next couple of weeks, a lot of people will be clapping. And she goes, the S train, they all clap whenever you say something. Yeah. And uh, so that turned me on to the London scene. Because to me... Uh, Let, let's delve a little bit yeah. more deeply into Est, because exactly. people might not know exactly no, what exactly. that is. So Est was a, uh, set up by a guy called Werner Earhart. That wasn't his real name, of course. All a bit dodgy. But I think what really happened was he used to come up to Estland and basically obviously really had a good time and had the, the, the knowledge and the ability to turn that into something bigger. And the way I see it, uh, Estland is the village store. Est at that time was the supermarket. So you go to these meetings in hotel rooms, very, very, very different from Esther, definitely not laid back, very forceful, uh, but really got people to look at their lives and look at their relationships and really see if they could change or if not, not change. The way that I see it is that Est is this outgrowth from the confrontive aspects of Gestalt and Encounter that were popularized at Esalen in the mid 60s to early 70s. And then Werner Earhart comes here and he sort of corporatizes some of the elements of, of encounter. Yeah, exactly. And it, it only just started in England. I think I did the mm. second training there. And, and I just, I got off on it. You know, it was, it was watching people. I love watching people. It's all about people. Yeah. And making fantastic friends on all different class, especially upper class. I finally had upper class friends. Not obviously set out to have upper class friends. But suddenly I know Lady Anne and Lady Olivia and all these people. These people are looking for what in their lives? What brought they're them to They're looking for a way out of the binds they're in. Especially in England, there's so many binds. I mean, England is totally bound down at the moment. It's a total mess. And it's about cutting those ties, getting yourself free. Not saying sorry every time someone Mm -hmm. steps on your foot. Mm -hmm. That kind of stuff. Yeah. And did you benefit also from oh, that training? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Brought me out of myself. Certainly made me way more social. Made me realize a lot more of who I was. Okay. I started having people coming up to me going, you look like the most interesting person in the room. Can I be your friend? Well, I can ask for more than that, can you? I right. mean, really. It turned me into, into a bit of a rock star with that because I was very much the working class kind of guy in this very middle class, upper class scene. Oh, okay. And so I really yeah. stood out. The yeah. fact that I was a tractor driver. They don't, these people don't know tractor drivers. Oh, interesting. You know, so that, they really, and they want, you know, and this was all about people wanting to know each other. <laughs> so, okay, so uh, yeah, so tell me, how, how did this progress from So this progressed, S- so I'm doing the S training. Uh, I, I, I did a few things with it. Uh, I moved up to London to sell records for my record company. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the bands he wanted me to sell, I didn't really like. Mm. So I was kind of, nah. Um, I was living in Kew Gardens, and it's a beautiful little cottage, but it turned out that one of our roommates was an, uh, was an escaped bank robber. So I moved mm-hmm. back home. Things were going weird. I'd think to myself, oh, God, I haven't got my bicycle repair kit with me as I'd be cycling out. And literally, having said that, watch a nail go into my tyre. Mm-hmm. Endless coincidences, endless, not quite right stuff. Yeah. So I said, I want to get to the bottom of this. and I want to be able to deal with this. Plus, I, you know, I want my life to be more of what I know it can be. You know, back to the old potential S. thing. Yeah. And the S definitely starts that. But right. It wasn't a particularly, didn't really get me going. It just got me started. Right. So um, cocaine had come to London. I hate this stuff. But being around people on coke is not fun. I just wanted to get out. I didn't want to go out east. I mean, I love the east, but I'd done that. Yeah. So I really wanted to find out uh, uh, how, how can I get myself out of this situation and be where I really want to be. 
And so I set myself up a three-month program, and I'm back in my hometown. I'm not going to go to London. I'm going to pay off my debts. I'm going to get my job back. I'm going to get a nice new wardrobe, have a good haircut, and really, really get my life you know, happening. And there was a great big party up in London, so I'm going to use that party and get everything together. And I also want to find an answer to all these coincidences, and I want to meet the Time Lords. And the Time Lords are a Doctor Who, if you've ever heard of the British thing. They're, they're these, these time time wizards who zip around the universe and do their thing and I wanted to meet them because I knew they were there I knew they were out there there were too many weird things happening uh, not necessarily the Doctor Who style time yeah. wars, but some kind of shall we say cosmic consciousness okay I knew it was out there and so I was going to get all this done by the time I got to this party I, mean, I was kind of joking I wasn't you know, that serious but so far enough I go to the party huge great hall about 300 people most of which I knew and up comes my uh, old girlfriend Hazel, who just turned her name, changed her name to Rachel because she was getting into her Jewish roots. You go, girl. And she goes, Neil, Neil, great to see you. Oh, I just did this workshop with the Time Lords. Oh, I just did this I'm, I'm, I'm like, yeah, like, like, what? I go. And she goes, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you got to do it, you got to do it. I go, yes. So that was, that was so real. So I found out about the workshop, got the phone number off her. It was in a little apartment in Fulham, but the person who had it was getting a free workshop to lend it. Beautiful little a garden smaller than this little room that had been turned into three little spaces that you could fit about 30 people in. So the workshop starts. In the morning, it's this, we, we all kind of pile into the big living room. We're sitting around, maybe 20 of us. Uh, the woman who's doing the channeling, that's what this is. It's a woman who has a piece of pad of paper and a pen in her hand, and she's going to do automatic handwriting, and she's going to be channeling the nine extraterrestrial beings that emanate from Sirius Beta. Sirius Beta, incidentally, is they, they go round with Sirius A. They, they don't go, they go around on a common point. Sirius A is just a great big white planet uh, star. Sirius B is a little white dwarf where one cubic inch weighs I don't know how many tons. And apparently, it's where the cosmic consciousness is hang out in our particular area of the galaxy. Okay. Well, I don't know. Uh, I don't think anybody's been up to there and found out either. So let's go for it. So here I am. In the morning, we did a few gestalt games. In the afternoon, she gets out of the handwriting. Put the pad and we start doing the question answer. One person goes. They've got some family questions. Out come the answers. Whoa, seems great. Next person goes, financial question, great, I better get going while they're hot. So my first question, I've been offered a job counselling unemployed kids. Very worthy, but I kind of needed the counselling myself. So I said, extraterrestrials, should I do this job? No, we hope not, they said. Your friend Ian should do it. Oh, you know Ian? So I told Ian about it, and he's doing it for a couple of years. So my next question is, well, what should I do? Yeah, the great question. Back comes the answer, go to Esalen as a work scholar. That is wild. So it was wild. It got wilder because it turned out this woman was from my hometown. Her name's Jenny O'Connor. She was married to Terry O'Connor, the local narc, the police officer, where we used to go to the court when our mate Pete got busted for a little bit of hash. We'd all go in our school blazers and do the power salute in the gallery while Terry O'Connor's down there busting poor old Pete and the judge was the headmaster's wife. So it was like, and here's, here's she, she'd broken up with him years ago. 
and got into it. She had a psychic experience and ended up at Esalen, where the nine were running Esalen. Not very well, but uh, that's the way it goes. Yeah, it's funny that you're telling this whole story because I knew about this Jenny and the Nine story for a long time. It's one of the more like infamous chapters yeah, of Esalen history. Which the idea being that Dick Price had had a lot of faith in this psychic named Jenny O'Connor, a person who communicated with nine extraterrestrial individuals. Yeah, he actually, it turned out Jenny told me that he sent, he, he sent Jenny out with Trevor and Russell. We mustn't forget her psychics. And um, Trevor did the ultimate, he, he would write everything down. He was a Hansard parliamentary stenographer. I mean, he really knew his stuff. Wow. So it all got written, everything that they ever did got written down. And Russell was the partner, basically, the, the, the logistics man. And he'd sent them out specifically to look for people who were, who were atypical of the normal Esselden uh, audience. I think he was very tired of they that. They were on of, a recruiting journey? Yeah, recruiting journey. <laughs> there was, he was Dick had no time for the Mill Valleyites with their press jeans and their bloody madras shirts. So or, Dick wanted more people. So he wanted people. He was always into people from every extreme. Yeah. Um, Dick was, had a huge vision. Uh -huh. I mean, it was bigger than he knew because the stuff would come in even, even like, whoa. So but he it, sent Jenny back so to England. So he sent Jenny uh, to, to, yeah, to London, maybe New York, other places, yeah. specific to bring in people wow. to, that wouldn't be wouldn't necessarily know how to get there if that's me unless they were using their psychic powers uh so yeah so that's what that so was what did about. you do did you so what happened was um i didn't have hardly money after so i i saw jenny again and asked them with the nine and i said look i, I can afford the flight but i can't afford the whole whole thing mm -hmm. you know the work scholarship and she said oh don't worry dick will give you a scholarship mm -hmm. and i'm like oh so it was all set up I went to this great party of all the all the Esalen people in London. All people have obviously been mm. through Esalen. Yeah. And that was cool because I got to see all these cool people who were very confident or, you know, they were doing well with their lives. And I go, oh, this is the this is the Esalen crew. Well, I know that Will Schutz's Flying Circus went to London. Exactly. They went, they went to Europe in the yeah. late 60s. In the late 60s. So that stirred up a lot of stuff, only in very tiny areas. But when you get them all together. So what were these areas? Was this the counterculture or was this? No, like, this wasn't. This was more of people who pretty much more of the, the, the Est Kind of, the human potential, uh, the human potential movement. Yeah, these people were. were what there was, I remember doing a, a, by the S training. I don't know if you ever get to Westland. Was woman was running at Revlon in Britain. Yeah. You know that kind of level. You know, not not that was fun for me. I'm, I'm a tractor driver. Yeah, but yes, yeah, so I think most of these people were running their own companies. Yeah, or, or uh, basically, you know, but still keeping that Esland buzz going. So tell me about arriving at Esalen. What was so, it like yes. when you first? Well, first of all, before I got there, I would have to tell my parents what I was doing, obviously, and some of their friends were very interested. But my mum, when I was starting to talk basically what we've just been talking about, she started kicking me under the table. Is this would this be like 1979? This would be 1981, January 1981. I arrived at Esalen just as Joe Blow. You know, I'm just Neil and I'll get to know you. Yeah. So I turn up and nothing much. The first evening, we have the big evening where uh, we, we have the introduction to the Work Scholar Program and the old meat market where everybody's hanging out, checking everybody else out and all that stuff. And he was a Work Scholar, you'll remember that. And uh, obviously the Work Scholars hadn't been doing their work because Betty Dingman does her spiel. And then she goes, I'm now going to bring out my partner, Janet, who is going to have to talk to you, uh, needs to talk to you. So out comes J Janet Lederman with a more cigarette, parachute jump, you know, baggy uh, grey eyes. And she walks around the circle, pointing at each work scholar, you are here to have fun. 
but you're also here to work. So there's one thing you've got to remember. You've got to do your 32. I'm going, this is not a hippie camp, you know. You're 32 hours. Yeah, they're obviously, they're having, you know, but these guys probably hanging down the bars too much. But over the next week, that's when it got interesting because everywhere I went, I'd see all the old staff members twitch and go, that's the guy at the nine cent. Jenny had had a meeting with the staff and told them I was coming, told Steve Williams from New Zealand that who was heading grounds at the time, that I was going to be his best friend while, while we were together, which we were. You were right. She was right. Yep, she was right. And basically, yeah, so I, I was a superstar before I even knew it. So it sounds to me like Jenny was actually able to predict some, like she got some things right. Oh, yes. I mean, I, let's not get into how big. As far as I'm concerned, she got 100% right because she got exactly what I wanted her to do. Yeah, she changed her life. She changed my life. What was the general, how popular was Jenny on Esalen campus? Um, up and down. She was a very macho. They'd have these endless boozy nights playing cards, drinking stolly up at the staff units and stuff. Or Trevor would be asleep in the middle of it all. Parliamentary practice, probably. Uh, I mean, oh, the nine would tell them people really outrageous stuff, you know. Like what? Um, go out with him, go out with her, you know. Just Dick really was just looking. He, I think, he was tired of running the place because uh-huh. he really, I mean, it's a huge thing to run. So it had been almost 20 years. It had been almost 20 point. years. So you'd go up in the hills a lot just running just to get away from it. And so I think the nine were just a way of throwing it up in the air. <laughs> they weren't very good when they came to be managers. How, how long did they hold sway? I, it was only going for some time when I got there. Um, but yeah, they hadn't got, got all the power because they made Joan Fiore the, the CEO, the director. Uh-huh. She was a gestaltist, but she, what, the, her kind of gestalt was very dark. People were into the dark areas. And she naturally expected, being the director, that all her people would become um, extended students and, and, and stuff like that. But the rest of the place wasn't having it. Oh. So it was a complete mess. So you had all these dark people expecting suddenly they're going to be running the place and everybody was going, no, you're depre- you're way too depressing, you know. Well, Gestalt must have been a, I mean, a real force at Esalen. It was a massive people- force. And many different kind of facilitators. They weren't all dark. You oh. had Jay-Z, who was just this big, lovely New York lady. And Who's Jay-Z? Janet Zuckerman. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, pretty. I mean, he's very Jan, Janet Lederman, who everybody was terrified of her. She, she also had a gestalt. She, oh yeah, practice. she was Fritz Perls's um, assistant, and so you had that whole Perlsy and think, oh yeah, these people were serious gestaltists, but they each had their different angles. Again, and Dick again, his his was completely different. What was Dick's angle? His was. Um, I'll tell you about my first process with Dick. So it's only I've been there a couple of weeks. We had him every Wednesday afternoon, you know, the, the group. So I'm, I, I thought, I got, again, like, like the nine, I've got to, got to get some of this. So a couple of people work on their mum or whatever. I come up and I just sit there. Dick goes, okay, how you, you know, how you feeling? And it, what colour? Yeah, just very. He's picking the lint off the carpet. He said, what colour? Yeah, just yeah, what colour do you feel? I mean, just yeah. just these very simple little questions, just to get you moving along. He, he, he's not he's not wanting you to be anything. He's just because some of the gestalters do they want to. Fortunately, we won't go there. So he's totally open. And I'm kind of there, and what color? I'm kind of blue. What kind of blue? Underwater blue. Well, how do you feel? I feel wonderful. I feel I'm a dolphin. And just kind of, you know, just, just I was the happiest guy on earth because I got to Westland. I, I was where I wanted to be. I'm surrounded by the people, you know, I'm meeting new friends. And so I was just the happiest person. And after that, he goes, You feel complete? I go, Yeah. So it was just really, it wasn't about me working on some big issue. Dick had, didn't have that kind of 
force. Was Dick interested to have met you in, in terms of you being the person that Jenny had found? Well, the first time I met him, this was before the process, it was um, uh, my leader, Jeff Kent. He was coming along the other side of the, of the road as I was walking back to South Kent. I'd already crossed the road to go up the, the hill. I was just about to go up the hill. And I see him with this older man, both kind of running along. And Dick had been away for the first few days, so I hadn't seen him. And uh, I see Jeff go, 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 basically go to Dick and go, that's the guy the nine cent. So Dick, yeah, as we get closer, calls out across the road, oh, you're the guy the nine cent. So I, I realise it's Dick. So I, I call back going, uh, maybe I sent the nine. You know, he was obviously a very integral part of me coming. It wasn't just the nine, it was Dick Price, it was Dick, really. Yeah. It was really Dick. Right. The so did you feel gratitude? So I felt gratitude. And, and, and for a while I felt maybe I should become a leader or maybe I have a purpose here. Mm. What my actual purpose turned out to be was basically uh, his son's, one of his son's very best mates. You know, because David's coming to visit me at Christmas in England, you know, this year or so. Because David, David Price, but you know, he's one of my closest friends. Are you all about the same age? Uh, no, he's quite a bit younger than me. He was like a very bedraggled younger brother that I never had. I had two when I first got to West. He hadn't quite come into himself. So when you showed up there in, in 81, how old are you? I'm, I was uh, 27, you know, sat in return. Okay. He was probably about 15, 16. Yeah. He hadn't quite gotten his feet. We both fell in love with this same gorgeous blonde girl I'm still very good friends with. So that, I think, was the purpose of me coming, was to be David's mate. Tell me about Dick on his presence in on the Esalen campus. How integral uh, was he? Well, in he, what wasn't, ways? he wasn't there much. He did, I mean, he was there, but he didn't want Everybody wanted a piece of him. And so he wasn't... I'd do the T-shirts at 11 or 12 o'clock at night, you know, because this was set in the, in the little office, pinning them up, you know, the, the, the Esalen T-shirts, the, yeah. the merch, okay. the merch. And he would come in, we had a great big book then, there was no computers, this is a great big book, and he would come in then to do his paperwork because no one would grab him. It was just, you know, often it'd be an empty office. And he'd, he was always bringing people in. I mean, the number of people Dick brought in as guests, endlessly. Oh, uh-huh. And it didn't matter who you are, I was, I was just one of many. And he would come and do this, he'd give me these scribbly little notes, and can you do, deal with this the next, tomorrow? And I'd go, yeah, sure. He'd terrible handwriting, you know. He'd, and he'd talk about the bookshop, and he'd say, you know all this? Throw it out the window. Throw it off the cliff. Steal it. People should not come to Western to buy T-shirts and read books. He was hardcore. Now, he loved his books. But when it came to Western, now it's like the same with his devices. I always make myself bigger and make a bit of noise when I go into the lodge. They're all on the devices. Come on, wake up. Well, what up. was the lodge like in the, in the Oh, 1980s? it was a scene. It was either very, very quiet or really happening. Uh-huh. Yeah. Crowded tables, not just the workshop, so much staff. You know, always something happening. Music. Drama, music, the latest workshop. Whatever it was, you know, it was serious. It was a nine-ring circus, basically. <laughs> it seems like that was, you know, you think about certain places and, and you're like, if you missed the 1960s, then you missed it all. But it seems to me that Esalen was crazy, must have been crazy I, it, vibrant in the It 80s. kept just very vibrant, very juicy. Very international? Very international, totally international. And you didn't know who was coming. People have been saving for years to come. People, you know, just kind of fell into it. People would come for a weekend and not leave for 10 years. A lot of them are doing it, they're getting paid for the, the credits. That was a brilliant thing of doing it. So you have all these nurses coming, they've got to do their CEUs. Yeah. So it's paid for by their hospital or whatever. Yeah, let's go to Esalen and do a, a week of heal, you know, heal, healing training there. 
So that really gave a nice solid energy of people not coming to freak out, but people really furthering the potential of their careers, but in a, in a good environment. What were kind of the subjects that people were checking out, you know, in the workshops and, and what was the subject of your Work Scholar Month? Well, the Work Scholar Month was potpourri. It was everything. Uh, we were abseiling down the, the cliff below the big house. We're doing the blindfolded thing on the beach. We had the massage month uh, weekend with the Jew hands. Dean and uh, Andrea to give me some uh, intro to, to massage. Mm. That was a whole weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, we had on the last week the Naked Parade. What's that? Well, the Naked Parade, and note, very important in the last week, but, but we knew about it right from the start. Everybody go into Watts or Maslow, take all their clothes off. There'll be a little platform put in, and one by one, and we're all naked, we would stand up in front of the rest of the group, and the rest of the group gets to say anything they want to about your body. Mm. And so the whole month, it's like people, not everybody came. So we're finally all in there. We all get up naked one by one. Nobody said anything negative. We all loved each other. We've been hanging out for a month. It was all positive. It was all really looking at ourselves from the beautiful point of view. We, we could be negative if we wanted to, but we kind of done that already. Uh-huh. I mean, after my process with Dick, uh, I went back to the evening process, and half the group wants to hang me because I wasted a session with Dick. Mm. I became a dolphin. You're supposed to be working on your mother or your dead pup, whatever. You can't, that's frivolous. And the other half supported me going, no, Neil's working on what he's working for. He's, that, he's as happy as a dolphin. So See, that's th- what you This becomes. is interesting because you, you told me that there were different schools of gestalt at Esalen. So you identified Dick has the sort of, he's the reflector, right? Yes, the definitely kinder, reflector. Yeah. gentler. Janet thing. was the, the, you're so shit scared that you're going to break kind of thing. So what would be an example of like what would go down in the Janet gestalt? Someone would very nervously start to work but because she really was there for the person, you know, I, I got her straight away. I knew that there's much more to this woman than, than we're just seeing. And so, um, so what, there was a very big heart behind a, what appeared to be a very small, very, not actually hostile, but very tough, envi- very New York kind of uh, you know, environment. Because she was very tough. The very first group I did with her, Work Scholar Group, our very first session was up at the far end and we all sat in a huge circle and she was there already. She'd come in a little bit early. So she's sitting there just totally calm and then one by one we all gather, we all sit in a circle and then one by one she's looking at each person one by one in the eye and I'm directly opposite her so I'm about halfway. So by the time she's about five people off me I'm about to burst into hysterics. I think this is so silly. This is so, I mean to me it's a joke, you know, it's like because she's, all, I mean everybody's shit scared, they're all kind of, you can feel the nervousness and so she gets to me, she looks straight at me and she winks. I go, oh, I gotcha. And she got me too. So, yeah. yeah. So, that once you, a lot of these people, because they, they were they're scary roles, you know, mm. they're, they're helping you really go deep into your life and not in a quiet little room with a, with a nice place to lay on, but in a, you know, a forum with people looking. A public stuff. setting. A public setting. Yeah. yeah. And you're on the hot seat. And so, again, Jay Z was, there was Dorothy who modeled herself on Chris Price uh-huh. and then, you know, developed her own technique. You see, you see them. People come in. What, how do you think that Gestalt, this emphasis on Gestalt, influenced Esalen of those days? I think there was a certain element of honesty, mm-hmm. of clarity. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be stuff. No matter how much Gestalt they're going to get, they're still going to be narcissists. They're still going to be full of their own shit. There's always people. It doesn't mean. But overall, yeah, and, and so many people coming in. Mm-hmm. Very much. This was about sharing. 
on a really big level. So how did your Esalen life kind of evolve as you stayed here? What, what did you end up working uh, in? Let's see, I started working. They put me in the kitchen and grounds when I first month because the, the grounds, they all wanted to know who I was. So that was until I got a good taste of grounds mm. and also the kitchen, which is a very interesting place. It's, I don't know the kitchen down there at all, but the, the old kitchen was quite, quite the dance. Then I uh, wanted to run the farm. I want to really learn organic farming. Started on the farm. I think there's still one lemon tree out there that I planted and maybe an apple tree. Uh, really enjoyed that. Then it was time to leave. Visa was running out. But I'd been promised by the head of the farm, Clay, that I could be the supervisor when I came back. Mm. When in the six months I was away, he left. Steve Beck got the job. Steve Beck didn't really know me. He wasn't going to give me the job. Understandably, he gave it to a woman. So I didn't get that job. So I ended up working in the office for a year and a half. So I came back and did that. And that was good because I learned I could work in an office, I could communicate. You know, it's great helping out people. You know, seminarians coming in who really don't know what they're, you know, some of them are, understand, completely lost. And it's great to kind of give them a little guidance and then they see you next, oh, thank you, whatever it was. Um, so the office was good, but it clearly wasn't really, that, that was, it was also a way of being at Esla. Mm-hmm. Janet Lederman used to come into the office, as she would be. She'd see me and she knew I'd been a park keeper. And she would see me and she'd point at me and go, I want you in gazebo. Uh-huh. And I'd do the sign of the cross at her and you know, get out of her. And then... Um, gazebo so I, being the, the school. school. Gazebo being the school that she, yeah, she says And when was that school um, started? It was started in 77. Dick Price had a kid. Before then, kids weren't particularly welcome at Eston. Brita had to hide Ivy under her peasant skirts when she was a waitress. But then suddenly Dick had a kid. Woohoo! Yeah. And Janet was there already. She talked um, 11-year-olds in the uh, projects in East LA. So she really knew how to deal with tough situations. And she also was Fritz Pelz's, um assistant. So she had a really good sense of how all that stuff works. Right. So she sets the school up, brings in the boat and brings in the giant wine barrel. Dickie's just going, what is she doing, you know? And Dick and Betty kind of shared an off, they're off the office. So Betty, being Janet's partner, will go, I don't know what she's doing, Dick. You know, She's just doing it. Yeah. I mean, one thing that's interesting about that whole story is that Janet, as far as I understand it, wanted to set up a school that was modeled around the principles of Gestalt. Exactly. But for, but for children. Yeah, for children. Keeping it simple and straight. You know, reflect... Use your words, eye contact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't hurry the child. Let them give them the room they need to. Mm-hmm. You know, give mm-hmm. them space. And as a park keeper, I was very appropriate because park keeping is kind of you do that. I mean, an English park is a little park. I don't know, you know, huge wild parks, but there's little urban parks where there might be some tennis courts. There might be a field for the, the five-year-olds. And my job is simply to make sure it's safe. It wasn't to educate the children. It wasn't to be with them in any special way, but just to oversee mm-hmm. them. And that's very much what gazebo is about, partly. So, and it's very, the gestaltists never got that. They were all full of, you know, the teach, teach, teaching. But I'm going, it's called preschool. I mean, come on, Unify were even worse on that one. I mean, like, it's called preschool, guys. Drop the curriculum. Let them create their own curriculum. They know better than you, tell me. Whereas as a park keeper, I'm not about, I'm being strict when the boundary is crossed. Yeah. But until that boundary is crossed, I don't really exist in some mm. way, because mm-hmm. I do. But yeah. Whereas they were much more hand, getting more involved and more the language. And, and some of them are absolutely brilliant. And Cypher, her language, I was so jealous. You'd sit with a kid and she just, every, I mean, she just used a few words and this kid would be telling her everything that she needed to know. Amazing. Or the kid needed to know. Yeah. It was I, I don't have that ability particularly. And that's fine because I have a different role. 
in my role as the overseer. I was there for 22, I think, years. When you were working at the school, did you live in Esalen? Yes, I lived in, uh, first of all, in all of the rooms in the farmhouse, then the tea house, and then I got, then both the yurts. And I spent 10 years in the lower yurt of the two gazebo yurts, which was the longest I've lived anywhere apart from my home, you know, my home where I grew up. But I think I've just passed that and up at uh, Kenny Laverne's property now. I've been there over 10 years. So I like doing that, you know. Continuity, and I always knew that I'd be leaving Essel at some point. You know, it wasn't a paradise. I was going to be there forever. There was always something was going to happen that I'd leave. Tell me about some of the ways that Esalen changed you during that time, during that 22-year stretch from let's the mid-80s. See. Yeah, let's see. Well, it made me more confident in obvious ways. I can remember, I'm, looking for, I'm always looking for a girlfriend. I, my karma is you know, to be single, I think. And, uh, and I can remember doing it like a month where every time I was attracted to a woman, I would do something about that. Mm. Not sleazy, but just, you know, be honest. You know. And I didn't get any girlfriends out of it, but I really got some great responses, you know, and really helped me build my confidence. Stuff like that, just making more... So I wasn't definitely not feeling victim, but feeling much more I'm, the, I'm, I'm running this show. Yes. And, and really enjoying that. Uh, just meeting so many people. Yeah, so so many different the friendships. People. Even now, just the parents of the kids I used to look at for the workshop programs, mm-hmm. they're still coming through and telling me about their twenty-three-year-old daughter or their thirty-year-old daughter. So just that level of both Big Sur community, mm. uh, the, the school allowed me to really enter, and as well as the actually a much bigger community out there too. So, so I really love the school for that. Uh, love my kayak. Mm. Nothing like finishing work at four thirty grabbing my paddle, running down to the beach where I had the kayak stashed away up the canyon, jumping into the kayak and going out and hanging out with a bunch of whales for the rest of the evening. Wow. I mean, just, it, I, ah, oh, I mean, it couldn't be any better. The experience I had out there, just, I mean, just mind-blowing. I mean, one New Year's morning out there and 40 Risso's dolphins appear and they're all playing and going crazy and whacking each other. That's what they do. They're the clowns of the ocean. And they all disappear. There's just me paddling along, and then suddenly, about 50 yards ahead of me, they all appear like a huge line in front of me, like they're pulling me along. And I actually felt like uh, like Triton or Neptune. Mm-hmm. I actually felt like I, I was a god with these 50 incredible animals just just playing, you know, just playing games. It was that kind of experience. I, I don't know anywhere else I could have got that. Tell me more about dick price your reflections on him as an individual and the last memory i have of dick is being around at his house with me my dad who was here for a month and david um just hanging out david invited us around just just to be friends and uh jenny had just finally got a video dick didn't want a video but finally jenny was six years old still she wants a video video to just come in so we're watching the never-ending story I just thought that was so appropriate. That was the last time I saw Dick. But I went back to England and he died in the fire while I was away. On some levels, he didn't know what he was doing. And that's great. You know, that he really, this was, well, we don't know what we're doing. There's no plan here. They just came down to do, him and Michael, to do a a weekend workshop with Alan Watts or whatever and Spiegelberg. It wasn't about this huge thing. But of course, they caught the wave, 62. You're hitting a huge wave coming in. 
Uh, hopefully we'll get another one in about 10 years. We need it so bad. We get a real level of, yeah. of enlightenment across the board. Right. And that, the 60s was just a, big, a you know, beginning. I was playing uh, Revol Revolver by the Beatles yesterday. And you listen to that music, you go, my God. You know, tomorrow always knows. It's like, this is serious cosmic stuff. Mm. So there's going to be another wave of that. Eslin caught that wave perfectly. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Without, Without even meaning to. But absolutely not meaning to. On every level. Location, yeah. philosophy. Exactly. I was thinking about that too. Sexuality, hot tubs, you know, body stuff. Yeah. Every single level. Because, yeah, the hippies weren't that healthy necessarily, but the Eslam was. It was not. Did you ever take the work of Paula Shaw? I did. And I deliberately set myself up, because I, I can talk, obviously. You know, I am babbling away. Yeah. So I, it wasn't really about getting more confidence there I just wanted to be totally confident on being on stage I, I think about her where actually she she did S I'm good friends she was an S trainer she was an S trainer. Yeah, she was okay, trainer. So, so now I can see, now that I, I know a little bit more about S, I yeah. watched a documentary the other night, I can see the I connection between that. Paula Shaw's Max and the and yeah, that's, yeah, Yeah, definitely. And it's really the mastery. She just changed the name because she didn't have the copyright on it. But it used to start off as the mastery. Oh, it was called the mastery. Yeah, and okay. she was one of the people involved in it. Then she wanted to do her own thing. So, yeah, just change it. It's like deep tissue. Sure. And, but she was much more, you know, very involved in creating it. She was, um, I love Paula. I haven't seen her for a little while, but I saw her, I think, about three years ago. So I deliberately don't have a, a, a monologue or a, a, a poem or whatever. I want to I be gunned down. So I end up, this is the first evening where I stand on stage and I've got nothing to say. So she is just hurling stuff at me. And I, I mean, it's like a nightmare. It's like, you're, like a dream where you're naked on stage and yeah. people are throwing right. verbal barbs at you. But you wanted this. But I wanted it. And, and she goes on like that. And eventually they're just, bat they're just hitting the floor. I mean, they're, not, they're obviously not real. But, yeah. And then she finally goes, yeah, and you've got no friends at all. And Carol Renee at the back goes, <laughs> I'm his friend. <laughs> Thank you, Carol. Thank you, CR. She was and just trying to crack you. Huh? Exactly. And after that, I can stand on any stage. I actually did some of the reviews that we have, these great reviews. I, I can stand on the yeah. stage. I've seen you in the SLN archives, yeah, just, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. you, just, you just always pop up. Exactly. And so I, I just got it. No, it's something that's really interesting that comes out of doing that. I've done that work as well. And I think that I came out of it also with a similar thing. Like, I can be in, in front of people at any time. Yeah. Because I've been seen... I've been not shamed, but no. I've had my vulnerability exactly. and my shame on, on display. You've had it on display yeah. in front of people and just expose some really embarrassing kind of like issues that I'm working on in that group. And so now I feel like I'm what's the word? I've been inoculated against yeah. embarrassment. Yeah. And initiated too. Initiated. It's, it's definitely an initiation. I, I, I can remember being back in my hometown in the late 70s and having to go around and knock on the door of my friends and hanging out with them an hour or two because I was just desperately lonely. And, and something about walking on these pavements, the, the pubs weren't quite open yet. And there was this incredible loneliness. And then coming to here, and, and the opposite, you know, the, the opposite, it, even, it could be, even be negative, where sometimes I just really want to be on my own here. But over at Gazebo, we're in our own little world, just, the, just the, the real fluidity of community, mm. uh, especially one here where you had such a huge circle of people, not, not, not just living here, not just living in Big Sur, but living on the whole planet. We were coming through regularly. So you regularly see the old faces coming through and, uh, mm -hmm. and all the different stories and the different bits. And find it, I have friends, one friend was a CIA agent and he'd be telling us what he was up to all around the world when he'd come through. 
you know, you're not really going to learn that in the newspapers. You know, all these people who had some serious roles in life. My friend Robert, who uh, ran the um, Russian-Soviet exchange program, he was a uh, commander in the Navy. He spoke fluent Russian. He was the interpreter when Khrushchev was banging on the table with the shoe. He was there. He was the interpreter. So people at you know, really high level, but they're not high. They're just sitting at the table with me or hanging out. Yeah. I mean, that's to me very important. About it. It's a great leveler. But and then it was just across the board. It may not be the workshop where you, where you got it. It may be down the bar chatting to somebody or just you know, getting a massage and telling your body is in the right place and so you're, you're, you're living again. I mean, there's so many different ways that people come here and start living again yeah. and then leaving and taking that with them. Thanks so much for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing human potential and promoting positive social change. Your support helps us to continue to offer transformative programs and retreats that promote personal growth and collective well-being. To learn more about Esalen and how you can support our mission, visit our website at esalen.org.